Hello and welcome. You're listening to Connected and Ready, an ongoing conversation about innovation, resilience and our capacity to succeed, brought to you by Microsoft. I'm Gemma Milne. I'm a technology journalist and author, and I'm going to be exploring trends around how companies are adapting to a disrupted world and preparing for tomorrow. We're going to speak to the innovators who are bringing products, operations and people together in new ways. This year, we've entered a new world of education, fueled by technology and forward-thinking teachers. In this episode, I'm chatting to Veronica Appleton, Senior Lecturer of Intercultural Communications at DePaul University, about what it looks like to be an educator with schools closing, reopening and potentially closing again. We dive into how she navigated the need to adapt to remote learning for her students overnight from in-person lectures, how technology and empathy are playing key roles to ensuring equitable access and more personalised education for all, and what all these changes in 2020 mean for the future of education. Veronica, thank you so much for joining us on the show today. I wonder if you could start by giving me a little introduction to yourself and to what you do at DePaul University. Of course, and nice to meet you, Gemma. Um, I teach intercultural communication at DePaul University. I've been teaching with the university for about six years in November, and I've also been serving as kind of a diversity and inclusion expert for local universities and also local corporations throughout the city of Chicago. I want to rewind the clock back a little to March this year when schools all across country and indeed all across the world actually seemingly overnight closed physical classrooms and had to find new ways to teach. Um, What was this like? How did you continue to teach and stay connected to your students? You know, Gemma, it was a very, very unprecedented time in education, right? Overnight, we had to utilize technology in a way more impactful way. Um, and the necessity was completely inevitable. But what we've learned over time is that the connections have been celebrated. Collaboration was completely reinforced within the university and also amongst the students. But I also believe that empathy was established as well. I think that people took more opportunities to learn from one another, um, but to also see what we can do in the interest of time that we had. Specifically at DePaul, there's a team of online instructional staff that was able to provide some support to faculty members and even to students, right? If you're getting ramped up in certain systems that we have within the university, if you have some folks on staff that are specializing in learning and design, I think that that really eases the process. But the reality is that Most faculty members, even including myself, have had some form of online or hybrid teaching experience. For those that may not have had that experience and may have been teaching for years, I don't think that how quickly you accommodated your students or quickly shifted into this new uh, way of working, I don't think that that really channels how good of an educator you are. I think that when you develop an understanding for what people need in that moment, I think that that's where the real conversations, the real change really occurs. And then even just to think back, there's moments where we find ourselves, even at that time of, yes, severe pandemic, where we had to understand what was at risk, right? Our health was at risk. Our overall well-being of our families was at risk, but then also our careers, Because quite frankly, I think that many people have to take a moment 
to understand where the real impact lies. And I think a precursor of understanding good teaching is understanding the needs and meeting truly meeting people where they are, because you have to question yourself. Is this video really necessary for this conversation? How can I share the materials in my class without having students to download? Can they go to a local library or can they look at something on their phones? What types of businesses were open during that time where students could get the resources that they needed? Could they go to a local grocery store? Could they go to their local superstore? And so we found ourselves asking some questions of, do I need to hop on the phone with my students more? Do my students really need high-speed Wi-Fi? So at the collegiate level, we were going through these issues and specifically in early education as well. I have many friends who are teachers who are prepared for their elementary students to either go onto those online platforms and understand how they can build connections with them, but also encourage parents to get those children in those online platforms so then they can be engaged because we've seen several studies over the last couple of polls, I should say, where students have been less engaged. And so I think that that's one of the areas of opportunity as we look forward. But at that very beginning, it was so eye-opening for us to really utilize the time that we had, which was a matter of weeks, to prepare our students for what was to come. And, you know, of course, there are challenges everywhere, but I think that there was just a tremendous amount of collaboration over that time. I want to rewind the clock back then just a little bit more to January this year or the end of last year. You mentioned that um, at DePaul there's an existing team that's there to help with kind of online learning or different learning experiences. And of course, you said yourself and I'm sure lots of your colleagues have some experience of doing online learning or online teaching. And I'm curious, what was the conversation at that time around utilizing this tool that we have, this internet technology, whatever you want to call it, tool, um, digitalization of education, shall we say? What was the conversation like then? And is it a case that we've kind of accelerated this transition in some sense? Or is it a very different thing now talking about almost just trying to make sure people are connected? Yeah, yeah. You know, that's a really good question. I think, Gemma, when we think of the term accelerate, many things that probably come to folks' minds is, oh, where you're doing things very quickly. You're not really seeking the true success or the true end result and what's going on here. But in fact, you know, you're really just trying to accommodate what the students need and accelerating that process of acceleration, that process of moving at the speed of light thinking of very innovative and creative ways to connect with your students is really all in the midst of utilizing basic tech tools. So whether it's an online management system, right? It's a web system of some sort, a conferencing platform, email, uh, utilizing the phone, right? We remember using phones, right? (laughs) Um, Or even just a simple email. Um, I even encourage my students to text me if they had questions, right? Because I think Providing that immediate support in a time that is just so unknown, I think is so important. And I wanted to make myself available to my students as I have in the past, but even more so during that time from March 
until the end of the quarter, which was June. But one thing that I also realized is that you cannot monitor the work of your students, whether they're in the classroom or whether they're learning virtually. And so there's more open communication and this evolution of trust models for productivity, to see the work of your students, to see your students kind of growing in the coursework that you're sharing with them and the the reading material that you're sharing with them. So I think this acceleration is also in tandem with innovation and being creative and understanding, yes, the needs and the wants, but what you can offer as an educator, because I think that now this is the best time for us to get new reading materials, right? Students, if you can't go to the local bookstore, what books from some of those online platforms that they can order books from or download articles from or, you know, pull things from social media, how can they utilize those mediums to provide that coupled learning that's necessary? So I want to talk a little bit more about sort of digitization um, of the delivery of education in general. Um, I wonder if you could speak a little bit about why maybe this area excites you and where the opportunities might lie. Um, By the same token, on the other side of the coin, really, where some of the problems might be. And of course, um, considering your sort of deep expertise and knowledge of culture and socioeconomic disparities, I think it would be great to hear your sort of dual take, perhaps, on an education and technology. You know, I think for students that have never taken an online course before, you know, those that may have a preference for learning in person in some kind of way. I can only imagine some of the challenges that they faced. Maybe some students that may have more of an introverted personality where they would go into a classroom, they would sit down, they would learn, and they probably wouldn't say much. But in an online setting, there may be opportunities, and I've even seen this, where some of those students really come out and just say, this is my view. This is what I want to say. And so they're happy, even in the discussion forums and their papers that they turn in. So I see something really beautiful happening with the voices of young students, where they're empowered, whether they're introverted or extroverted, no matter, that they're able to be themselves because this is a medium that they utilize the most. They're behind the screen even already. So seeing how they've been able to develop their role behind the screen, I think is, you know, something really, really positive that's made its way into their education. One other thing that I always encourage my students to do is to really think critically about culture, because I think one of the tenets within intercultural communication is self-reflexivity. It's the examination of oneself understanding cultural differences, the recognition of alternative perceptions and attitudes and values and customs. And so I think that at this time, and specifically because not only are we in a public health pandemic, but for years we've been in a racial pandemic, right? So I think that the way in which we contextualize how we convey these messages, how we frame learning I think has significantly changed and it's changed for the better. Um, I think that students feel confident in their ability to learn, right? Of course, four months ago, that was probably a different story, but I want 
students to find those candid opportunities for us to connect because our role as educators and their role as a student is so pivotal, especially right now. It's we're thinking of solutions for the world we're living in today. And I think that that's very important. And so to the second half of your question, we've been We've been facing this racial pandemic for 600 plus years, right? If you date back to the late 1400s at the beginning of the transatlantic safe trade, there are moments in history where we can date back to this evolution of why the topics of intercultural communication uh, becoming one. You can even look at nonviolent communication where it is truly in tandem of understanding people understanding humanity. And I think right now, right, if we think about the ideology of Jim Crow and, um, of course, George Wallace, right, there's needless to say, even the three Ks, which has permeated throughout the world to today's type of systematic racism within corporate America, modern day enslavement of children and families at the border. It's just, there's so many things at risk. Right. The understanding of a student, understanding what's going on, how they can place it into perspective of their core ideology and then understanding the future. And then if we even trace back to right now, how there are moments of voter suppression where voices aren't being heard and the right for people to exercise their vote is also being threatened. And so we have to continuously challenge ourselves, hence hashtag challenge accepted, right? Where we see violence against women. We see this social media campaign that's calling people out and saying, hey, we have to pay attention to the violence against communities. That's all in tandem with how we learn about our next move in the world. And it always has to be a strategic move as well, right? When we think about these topics, we're building leaders for the future. And I think right now, because we're at homes in our corridors, we're learning from people that we probably have never even thought we would learn from before. Students are now taking the time to understand what we can do and how we can accommodate. So I think there's a tremendous amount of opportunities to personalize the educational system. And personalized voices that can develop literature for the future. Because right now, there's 100 poets just from Chicago that have created a book about violence and specifically gun violence. And they're responding to the world that they live in. And I think that that's what's going to be really, really pivotal in the future. There's multiple studies being done today of tracing back to the effects of this pandemic, the usability of technology, and how it can impact the future. And so I'm excited about what's to come, but I'm also very, very concerned about what's happening now and how to develop some solutions for that. Here, here. I think um, I would love to actually then talk a little bit about your experience with some of these solutions and your process of teaching and your interaction with students over the last couple of months. What technology do you think or or uses of technology has helped advance 
solving these kind of problems. There's no simple solutions to these, as you've obviously pointed out, and as we all, I hope, understand is kind of obvious now. Um, but what are you seeing? What role is technology playing in helping move things forward? Um, how has it been challenging at the same time? Yeah, you know, as I prepare for the autumn quarter, I know that we are going to be remote. And I made that decision in early June because I want to protect my students. I want to protect my colleagues. I want to protect myself. Although the options of creating a hybrid or asynchronous type of course was available to me, I wanted to make sure that I was utilizing the technology that was provided by the university, right? So we have an online portal for students and they're able to log in, trace their assignments, see their grades, all of those really great things. And it's the basic tools that I'm using in order to do that. Because I think in a state of panic, there has to be some mode of calm. And that mode of calm is the simplicity of ensuring students are learning in the most simple and creative way. But needless to say, I think the researcher in me is always finding uh, polls and uh, articles that are highlighting these things, right? Highlighting what innovation looks like, highlighting the experiences that people have gone through, uh, specifically during these last four to five months. And there was a poll by Bayview Analytics that reported from 600 institutions, a majority of faculty, about 56%, reported using teaching methods they had never used before. So they were literally in the midst of creating new modes of communication. They were innovating new ways of learning for their students. And so I think we're seeing a shift in appreciating new technological advances, right? And I think that that can look like a majority of things, whether it's web conferencing, social media, utilizing platforms that we use every day for work. And then again, you know, back to the old fashioned way of picking up a phone and calling your students. Um, because what we maintain every time is that the quality of instruction will be at its most high at all times, whether you're physically in person or you are distancing online, the quality of your education will remain the same. And so it's your level of effort that you put into it because educators, they're going to do everything that they need to do in order to maintain that. But some of the benefits of, of this innovative and creative model is that no matter where you are, you're going to get that education. And I think that that's most important is that taking even advice and recommendations from your students can also be very helpful because you may have some students that like to email, but some that may text or want to hop on a web conferencing more than others. And so again, it goes back to my earlier point about meeting your students where they are and creating more of a personalized mode of education. So then each student, they know that during that pandemic, they had several instructors that were helping them through that process. And it's one less thing that they have to worry about 
so you spoke a little bit about personalising the education system. What does that look like? What can educators or how can educators do that? Is that a sort of technology enabled personalisation concept? So some of the ways personalisation can be achieved in education could include even on the first day of classes, in addition to virtually introducing yourself to your class, is also taking a polling of what communication method your students enjoy the most. Um, taking a poll of the different types of resources they can you know, learn most from. Do they enjoy social media more? Do they enjoy videos more? Do they enjoy articles or pop culture type of articles more? This gives us as educators a great opportunity to connect personally with our students and give them an opportunity to uh, develop an understanding of how they want to learn in the classroom, in addition to what's in the syllabus, right? Because you have your textbook, you have some supplemental textbooks, and you may also have some peer-reviewed journal articles. So personalizing it with a survey of some sort, uh, maybe doing some wellness checks, right, once a week could really, really be impactful, And whether that's a video chat via a web conferencing or maybe even just voice you can turn your camera off when you want to, right? You don't have to always show up and feel as if you have to put on a, a happy face when you're not just doing so happy. And um, as long as you are keeping your students alive during this time, and alive meaning in spirits, in energy, in comfort within your classroom virtually, that really hints at that opportunity of personalization because you're really putting their interests first. Of course, the material is important. Of course, keeping things top of mind is important. But that really, really enhances the teaching methods of the future. Personalizing your education, utilizing the systems that you've been given, but then also kind of changing them and making them very, very unique. So they not only fit, quote unquote, but really add value to the education that your students are receiving. Microsoft Power Apps gives educators the tools they need to stay better connected with their students and enable a more personalized learning experience. Through low-code app development, educators of all technical skill levels are able to build professional apps that run on mobile and web without writing a single line of code. By extending the power of app development to the classroom, Power Apps enables educators to innovate and better meet the unique needs of each student. See how one school district is leading the way by following the link in the episode description. I want to talk a little bit about compromise um, because, of course, there's little choice at the moment around how we work, how we learn, how we engage as citizens right now. But I do think that there's also an element of how we use technology to compromise and shift and kind of fill gaps that sometimes actually we can't even access when we're not using technology. So an example might be, you know, building of community between students, obviously, is a big part of education. It's not just the materials that you're that you're getting and the facts and figures that you need to learn. It's the learning from one another, which for some students in the classroom, that will be the best place for them. But for others, as you mentioned earlier, perhaps those that are not as able or willing to engage, maybe an online uh, environment is better for that. So I wonder if you could talk a little bit about some examples of where technology has 
perhaps maybe compromise some of the things you can normally do physically and then in other sense fills gaps that perhaps the physical uh, space has not allowed for certain students to be able to fully fully get involved. Yeah you know some of the filling of the gaps I'll start there is finding immediate resources online so giving students an opportunity to find information immediately was very very important to me and typically in an in-person setting. But if you have a course that's built specifically on your textbooks, there's a waiting time in that, right? You have to go to the bookstore, you have to order from online, but I was able to utilize videos and social posts and news articles, and they were available immediately, right? All of those really, really great talks that we find online, that's available to my students right at the click of a dime. But one thing that I think you'll probably never be able to fulfill and, and or replace is that human touch, right? It's really standing in front of your students, talking to them, lecturing. Those, that's where I feel alive, if you will. But I was able to utilize my laptop and, and still come through the laptop and talk to my students and offer my empathy because we were experiencing the world in a challenging time. But I think one of those continuous challenges is that human touch, right? Being able to see humans and your students hearing your voice, seeing your nonverbal interaction, I think is very important. So it can never be replaced, but through active engagement and through consistent updates to your your students, I think that they can still have that personalized feeling. So Although it can be seen as a challenge, I think the human touch can also be navigated through a technologically way. I want to talk a little bit about privacy because this is a, a big topic in the technology world more generally. Everybody is online doing everything um, with their computers and information, video, texts, emails, everything is being conducted in a way that can be stored, is happening in the home, is happening in spaces that you're not normally sharing with employers or universities and so on and so forth. So how do you think about the privacy of your students? Is this something you um, you have been speaking to them about around their usage of technology for education? Or um, is this something that's quite difficult to try and work around when you're simply just trying to deliver the best education possible? That's a really great question. And um, I always encourage my students to turn off your camera, add passwords if you're setting up meetings. Also add passwords and refresh your passwords every six months, even on your social media platforms and your email accounts. Um, and I also believe that when you have a team in place within a university that's responsible for online learning, Students not only get that information from me as their educator, but they also get that information from the institution. And so I think reinforcing it really helps. When we think of security and privacy, I think that there's never enough information that we can receive when it comes to those topics, because we have to also take on the responsibility to do our own research, right? Because we are living in a interesting time. And so during those interesting times, we have to shift and make changes because we cannot go back to normal. And if you are utilizing systems more than usual, you may be at risk. So I think that that is the reality. So if you're refreshing your passwords, maybe you're changing up a few of the sites that you utilize, maybe you are 
pursuing things in a different way online, then I think that refreshing those can be super helpful. And maybe some of my friends that work in cybersecurity, they may say, no, Veronica, six months is not enough. I think you probably need to do it every three months or something. So um, I think the way that you shift and change, depending on your time online, right? Because I think we've been living in this space for several months now, refreshing those passwords and establishing a sense of security is, is very, very valuable. You spoke about your hope for the future of education and being able to move things forward in a really positive way. Could you give us some examples, perhaps, of where the sort of usability of tech or the adaptability of tech in education is really helping to build that hopeful future of education? Absolutely. I think it's really a meeting of the minds in what you're learning and how you can create new and creative ways to do that. And the way to make that happen is by accepting technology, adding it to your classroom, but utilizing methods that are simple and friendly and provides you as an educator an opportunity to feel connected with your students. And more specifically, I think, as we look at some of the traditional modes of communicating, right, if we look at the TV, if we look at radio, if we look at hence podcasts, right, there are more ways for students to learn outside of reading traditional textbooks, reading traditional news articles, embracing what this new mode of change is, I think is really, really important as we stretch what teaching methods really are. Because if we look at the very traditional way of teaching, it's standing in front of a classroom lecturing and feeling as if your students grasp everything that came out of your mouth. But the real crux of education is embracing what students have to say, whether it's through a telecast of some sort, sharing a webinar, inviting guest speakers to come in, listening to podcasts, asking your students to react to the podcast, even lectures at other institutions and where they were able to have a 100-person view. I believe there are multiple ways to see innovation and teaching methods, and they can look like a variety of things. And so for those teachers that have stepped out of the box and have taken that hopeful spirit, I believe that they are in it for the long haul. And I believe that they are listening to their students. They're responding to what society is asking for today. And what society is asking for is openness. It's being candid. It's not shying away from topics. You can even have a course on biological sciences or biochemistry, but somehow, some way, current times will find its way into that classroom. And the way in which you respond to that really stretches your teaching method. It gives you an opportunity to connect with your students. And we have to be able to easily respond to those moments. 
So you've shared with us quite a few of the sort of lessons and insights that you have, you've learned yourself over the last couple of months from, you know, the power of empathy, meeting people where they are, really working out, I guess, what the crux of the thing you're trying to solve is. Um, And of course, using sort of engagement as a bit of an opportunity here to try and get get students involved. But for other educators and organisations that are teaching and training in this time, what advice do you have? What's the kind of the biggest lesson you've learned during this time that you could pass on? Oh my gosh, Gemma, I learned so many lessons during this time. Um, patience is required. It's required. Uh, some of the earliest studies about organizational behavior, they stem from understanding how systems and process works during the industrial era, right, in history. It was known early on that change does not happen overnight. It's active engagement it's repeated instruction, and it's trusted measures of success to see how continued change can really, really occur. Where we are now is a period of that continued change. And students across the globe are counting on us as educators to build courses that pique their interest. And let's be clear, right? They will provide one step closer until they can physically or virtually walk across that stage to receive their diploma. Um, I think that that's what our ultimate goals are. And there's a learning design specialist from a university in D.C., Georgetown University, who said, we need to start unpacking why exactly do we see online learning as second class? Her name is Lee Bassett, and I thought that was just such a pivotal point that you, whether virtually or physically, you are learning from a capable university, and you have the capable skills in order to do that. The rigor of your program, the rigor of your classes is not compromised because we cannot physically be in person. And I think that we have to continuously remind ourselves that because we're building leaders of the future. We're leaders of the now. And the way that we do that is through that level of patience, through that continued work, and also through understanding that we have to build moments of not seeing things as second class, but seeing everything as first class when it comes to this. And truly reminds me, right, as a a Black woman in academia and knowing that I come from the public school system, Growing up and learning from those public schools in the inner city Chicago area, and we have to constantly remind ourselves that there are significant amount of barriers that are against children in marginalized communities. And we have to always remind ourselves that not everybody is going to have Wi-Fi internet access. Not everyone is going to be able to engage when we need them to engage. And so that's where the personalized education comes into part, that we have to significantly put time, resources, and effort behind that personalization. So then students from four years old to they're the age of 21, to the age of 26 when they're in a doctoral program, to the age of 50 or 60 if they're in an adult learning program, that your education is the highest priority of that institution that you are taking classes at. And the way that we reinforce that is by ensuring that everybody has a first-class education. 
no matter where you come from. And so I think that we have to remind ourselves of that. No matter where we are in this world, everyone has to have that. And then also, as we think about the parents and the guardians and and essential adults, they've been working tirelessly to establish that mode of stability or comfort in their children's lives. Even though I teach at the collegiate level, I am often reminded of what takes place in early education because I come from it. I served as a substitute for multiple charter schools and there are many children who have unique areas of learning and we have to find those opportunities where we can build relationships with the parents and we can really create a custom type of education for those students because that's how they're going to succeed. And it may sound like more responsibility on the teachers, but I think that one of the greatest gifts is being able to teach the future. And I'll end in 2016, I met Representative John Lewis. And it was a beautiful, beautiful encounter because I nervously went up to him. I said, hi, Representative Lewis, I'm Veronica Appleton. And he welcomed me. And I shared with him that I was teaching at DePaul University and that education is my passion. And his words were, do not stop teaching. We need you to teach. We need you to keep doing that. And those words stick with me to this day, knowing that he's now gone on. There are moments in history that we can never forget. And those moments that we can never forget are times when this world shifted and responded to the needs of students that are in the most marginalized communities, that we responded to the students and making sure that they received the education that they deserved, no matter what they look like. And I think that that response is gonna lead us into a more driven, more impactful, more purposeful future within this sector. And I'm hopeful that my efforts coupled with the efforts of my colleagues, coupled with the efforts of educators across this world, that they provide students everything that they need in order to redefine what issues lie within the economic system, but also issues that lie within the educational sector. So I'm hopeful. I defy anyone uh, listening to you speak right now to not feel hopeful because it's, it's, it's people like yourself who are keeping teaching and embracing the moment as much as possible, whether that's through different methodologies, as you say, meeting people where they are, uh, embracing innovation, or simply, as you say, picking up the phone and using what we think of as old school methods to keep things moving forward. So Veronica, thank you so much for sharing so many insights, so many stories, um, and so many wise, wise words and joining us on the podcast today. Thank you very much. Thank you, Gemma. Such a pleasure. That's it for this week. Thank you so much for tuning in. You can find out more about Veronica's work and indeed some of the broader themes we discussed today in the show notes. Don't forget to subscribe to the podcast and tune in next time to continue our conversation about innovation, resilience and our capacity to succeed.
Learn how Microsoft Power Apps give educators of all technical skill levels the tools they need to build professional apps that run on mobile and web without writing a single line of code. See how one school district is leading the way by following the link in the episode description.